Welcome to What Are You Reading, a podcast dedicated to leadership development through a commitment to reading. Bill Hamlin is the Director of Periodicals and Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings, the flagship publication of the U.S. Naval Institute. He is a retired Navy captain with nearly 30 years of service as an intelligence officer. He has served as an intelligence officer with an F-18 squadron, a Navy SEAL team, a carrier air wing, and a carrier strike group. He has also served tours with the Office of Naval Intelligence on Joint Staff J-2 as a Naval Attaché to Russia at the Joint Intelligence Operations Center in the Pacific and at the National Counterterrorism Center. He has written throughout his career and served on the Naval Institute Board of Control and Editorial Board from 1993 to 1997. He is a 1987 graduate of the United States Naval Academy, where he earned a bachelor's degree in political science and graduate of the National Defense University, where he earned a master's degree in national resource strategy at the Eisenhower School. Sir, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, Eugene. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on the show. Yeah. First question for you. What are you currently reading? Well, the latest book I read was C.S. Forrester's The Good Shepherd, which came out, I think, in 1951. Uh, It's the book that Tom Hanks based his recent movie Greyhound on. Bar none, it was the best action book I've ever read. It is incredibly interesting, fast-moving, very fast-paced action book about the decisions that Commander Ernie Krauss, who's the CEO of this uh, destroyer uh, in World War II, as he's escort, he's the lead of this convoy, an allied convoy, escorting you know ships across the North Atlantic to get to Ireland. And uh, it's like minute by minute, the tactic- tactical decisions he has to make, not only to employ his own ship, but also to employ the other escorts around this uh, this convoy. It's just fantastic. I was brought to it also because our Naval History magazine from the Naval Institute, we did a big story about the movie, about the making of the movie Greyhound um, back in the, uh, the, the May-June issue of Naval History. You know, that process of coming up with that content uh, for Naval History magazine and the tie-in with uh, with Tom Hanks and the movie was fantastic, right? But it also, I was like, I got to read this book. And then I read the book before our coverage came out, before the movie came out on Apple TV this summer. And it's it just, it's a fantastic, fantastic book. So controversial question, did you like the book better than you liked the movie? I did, but I'm I'm one of those guys who tends to like the book better than the movie in almost all cases. Uh, but the but the movie did a great job. I will say that Hanks and his team kept very close and true to Forrester's book. He presented all those tactical dilemmas right that the book does um, very very well. So it, it's a very good movie. But again, you know, I, I'm one of those people who rarely finds a movie as good as the book. Uh, But in this case, it was almost as good as a book, which is high praise for me. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. Anything else you're currently reading? Are you you reading through a lot of articles for submissions at proceedings and things like that? Yeah, right now we're reading, my team and I are reading 122 essays that came in for our first ever fiction contest. So, uh, (laughs) yeah. So the Naval Institute runs a lot of essay contests every year. So a lot of the content that you see in Proceedings Magazine actually comes from essay contests. For example, right now we're working on the November issue of Proceedings, which is always our Marine Corps focus. So the, the first three, the top three winners of the Marine Corps essay contest this year are in that issue of uh, Proceedings. SIMSEC, the Center for International Maritime Security, which I'm sure you know of, for the last couple of years, they've done a really good fiction week 
every year, I think in uh, November, December timeframe. And, and we noticed that they had some authors writing very good naval short fiction uh, that were not writing for proceedings. And so we, um, we teamed up with Simsec this year to um, sponsor the first ever uh, fiction essay contest that the Naval Institute has run. And this time we're partnering with, with Simsec. Uh, we thought we'd get maybe 30, 40 essays, you know, and uh, the first time we run an essay contest, that's about right. You know, normally we get 30, 40 people uh, who will write for us. And uh, this one, obviously, we tapped into a, a, a live vein because uh, we got 20, 122 essays. And these are wow. five, these are 5,000 word essays. Uh, so it's a lot to read. And um, my uh, I've got two of my, my deputy editor, Bill Bray. And the senior editor for proceedings, Brian O'Rourke, uh, the three of us are, are uh, we're playing first reader on about a third of these, and then the other two uh, will will read behind the first reader. So first reader on all of the essay contests and all of our essays that come into proceedings, that's the biggest job, right? Because you actually have to read something very closely, write a synopsis of it, and you know, kind of give a sense of what you think of this. Is it publishable? Is all of it publishable, or is there a certain part of it that we want to focus in on? And then second reader, third reader are just sort of, you know, giving it a quicker read and saying, um, yeah, I agree, this is great. This is an area where we should focus, or we could cut, you know, perhaps this section, that section. But 122 essays is uh, <laughs> that's a lot for an essay contest. For for example, the Marine Corps essay contest this year uh, had the most entries that we've ever had in that contest, and we've we've been running that one for quite a few years now, and we got 79 uh, entries, which is a lot. I think last year we had 60, but 122 5,000 word fiction essays is uh, it's a lot of reading. That's awesome. Did anything in particular spark why you guys want to go in the direction of of writing fiction in terms of what was the gain for fiction pieces as opposed to nonfiction? Well, I, I think my staff and I were all fans of good fiction, right? And we, we tend to read a lot. And um, I don't know if you've ever uh, heard August Cole, who's one of the co-authors of Ghost Fleet, right? Very popular book. Uh, so August has written for Proceedings. He's written some good short fiction for us. And August also, he gives a presentation, which I find fascinating, which he talks about fiction intelligence, right? Thick int. So in the intelligence world, we talk about imagery intelligence or imint, signals intelligence, sigint. And, and August talks about thick int, fiction intelligence, where a very creative mind, a creative author, the, the fiction author may not foresee the invention of the car, Right. But he sees the invention of the car and then foresees the traffic jam that's coming, right? And so you can take the technology and apply the technology and say, huh, what's this going to lead to in the future, right? So we, you know, generally proceedings is not, you know, uh, focused on on fiction. But every now and then it's great to have a nice, you know, piece of fiction. It's uh, a little lighter for the reader. Uh, it can be something that, um, you know, appeals to a, a different audience, perhaps, than, you know, the feature article that talks about, you know, the problems with the Marine Corps and how's the Marine Corps going to fix those problems, right? Um, and it can also it can also look perhaps 10, 20 years into the future, uh, rather than, you know, the sort of proceedings three to five year or one to two year or even the, you know, the next six months focus. Um, and so August Cole had a great piece um, a couple of years ago that we published uh, that was about... He had written it for the British Army, and then he adapted it for proceedings, and he was helping the British Army foresee sort of a future of overseas operations that they might get into. And in particular, it was a story about uh, light combat 
lightly armored combat in Djibouti in like the 2040s against the Chinese military. And there were lots of great technologies that were part of it, uh, UAV sorts of things. AI was a part of it. Uh, it was a really fun piece to read and it had, had some, uh, uh, a couple of great surprises in it. So that August, uh, you know, was part of the reason behind this. He'd written some other pieces since then. He's co-authored one that we published about a year ago. And then uh, my staff and I, we saw some really good pieces on the SimSec website last year. And we said, you know, we, we, we want more of this. We don't want to overwhelm proceedings, but we'd like to have more of it. And we'd like to uh, reach out to some authors who aren't writing for us and get them to start writing for the Naval Institute. That is a lot. It sounds like a lot of articles to be going through. And I imagine, you know, for folks in our audience, we also have this, a similar problem where there's so much content, so many things we want to read and read well and digest. And you're talking about the, the first reader really getting deep into it and having good comprehension. What are some effective strategies that maybe, you know, our, our audience can use as just readers of either nonfiction or fiction to really pull out key concepts and ideas in their professional development. You know, it's interesting. I, I was thinking about this question. Thank you for sharing me with me a couple of the questions you might ask. Uh, I was thinking about this over the last couple of days of how have I developed over the last couple of years as a reader? And because being the editor-in-chief of a magazine requires me to read a lot, not just our own stuff, not just the stuff that comes in uh, for proceedings, but I also need to stay up, stay abreast on what's happening in the world and, re you know, read. I do read stuff from SimSec. I read stuff from War on the Rocks. I read the New York Times. I read the Wall Street Journal. Uh, you know, not everything cover to cover, but I've become a better skimmer. And, and so I think, you know, it's like training for anything, training for a marathon. You know, the more you run, the faster you become, right? The more you bench press, the, the stronger you become. Uh, and so with reading, the more I read, the probably the faster I get at it. I'm better now than I was four years ago when I started the job at seeing quickly whether in the first couple of paragraphs, this piece is going to be worth reading. Right. I can pick up on the author's main points. I can pick up on the sort of cadence, the quality of the writing, and then I can sort of skim from there. And, and even on stuff that I think is really you know, worth reading, I, I've become, a, uh, I guess, a better you know, sort of sight reader. So some you know, words and phrases will jump out rather than having to read them word by word. And I've, just, I've become also a better skimmer and I can sort of tell, okay, here's a place where I want to go fast and here's where I want to stop and I want to dig in. But I think it's just, it's just practice, right? You, gotta, you have to read a lot to, be, to become a good reader. What advice do you have for maybe some of our aspiring writers out there to really capitalize on maybe those first couple paragraphs, something maybe you've seen trends of, hey, good, good writers always do this. You know, these are the kind of universal principles that you must have in the first two paragraphs to, to really get them in there. Well, I, I mean, it, it sort of depends on what you're trying to write. Um, and so we have in proceedings, for example, you know, we have feature articles, but then we also have a lot of shorter stuff, you know, like a, a feature article might be 2,500 words. A professional note would be, you know, 1,000 to 1,500 words and much more focused on a particular problem or issue. And then we have, uh, you know, leadership forum, which is a usually a two-pager about a particular, you know, a, a leadership issue, leadership advice. One of the things that I see from a lot of authors who submit to proceedings is that they, they often take a, 
a, a paper that they've written for the Naval War College or Command and General Staff College, for example. It could be a great paper, and their their um, you know professor might have said, "Hey, this I think this is worthy of getting published, you know, in War on the Rocks, in Proceedings, and you know, etc." Right. My advice to people who do that is, don't just send us your War College paper, right? Uh, because when you're writing for a professor for a, for an academic course, you have to tell the professor up front, you know, here's the issue, here's the sort of history of this problem or issue and why I'm going to write about it. And then you delve into, you know, here's um, the research that I've done and here's the, uh, you know, ABC recommendations. And then you have a conclusion, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's a reason for the, using that format for an academic paper, because you have to convince your professor you know what you're talking about, right? Yep. Um, but let's say the issue is uh, expeditionary advanced base operations for the Marine Corps, right? That that topic has been in proceedings now for the last couple of years. We've we've published numerous articles on that topic, and so our readers don't have to be told all the different permutations of the issue and the problem and where it started and what the commandants, all that forward, if you will, the, the forward part of it, you can, you can cut that down from two pages to a paragraph and, and then get into the meat of your argument, you know, get into the, why, why am I writing this paper? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the commandant of the Marine Corps said he wants to do this, but these are the challenges that confront us. Therefore, I'm going to, te- you know, I'm, I'm going to write on this particular challenge that General Berger stated, right? Or they can also, and I'll, I'll often, um, yeah, particularly this is true with, um, with new authors uh, that we haven't seen before and junior officer authors and, and senior enlisted folks as well. We're happy, uh, my staff and I are very happy to iterate with authors and help them. Okay, hey, we got your paper. It's a good start. Um, here's what we'd like to see you do, revise it and resubmit it to us, right? Um, and so oftentimes what we do in that process is we'll say, hey, did you read these three or four articles that have been in proceedings you know, in the past year on this topic? And then build from those, you know, because instead of starting a, a new completely whole cloth, right? It's like, you know, why don't you build on what Admiral so-and-so and Captain so-and-so and, you know, have all written about this topic and then, you know, tell the reader what your thoughts are moving forward. How do you move forward on this particular, you know, problem set? Um, another another good thing is, you know, it, it's always just great to uh, grab the reader's attention up front with, you know, something like um, I, I think we had a, uh, we've had a couple of really good professional notes recently on ship handling. You know, the ship handling uh, characteristics of a Zumwalt DDG, or of a Freedom Class LCS, or an LPD, right? And so, in the opening paragraphs, like, what's different about driving this ship that maybe your other surface warfare officers who've served on different classes of ship perhaps don't know, right? Did you know that the Freedom Class, you know, LCS has, uh, you know, jet thrusters, and we only have second second tour uh, surface warfare officers on them, because they're particularly challenging ships to drive, right? And you go, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. And then even if I'm not a, a SWO, maybe if I'm an aviator, I go, all right, well, you know, jet, jet thrusters on, a, on a, a surface combatant, you know, that might be interesting to me, right? So, yeah, anyway, so adapting academic papers for publication is is a good idea. But just be sure before you do that, that you adapt the paper. And that you read that you read whether your target is proceedings or simsec, you know, read what's on their website and see how other people are writing uh, on related topics before you 
you know, just send an academic paper to that, um, that publication. Yeah, absolutely. I want to touch on something you're, you're mentioning in terms of uh, reading material related to the topic in the preparation phase for getting a good article out there. So for example, for a feature article, you know, 2,500 words, if you had to guess, what, what do you think is like a safe rule of thumb for volume of material you need to read to do a good execution of writing that kind of feature article? I think it depends if you're an expert or not an expert on the topic, right? So if you're, let's say, a Top Gun instructor and a, a Hornet pilot with 3,000 hours and you're headed to be COXO of a squadron or you're just finished being COXO of a squadron and you want to write an article about um, how to improve the tactics of the Super Hornet for a particular flight regimen, you know, you're probably the expert and you probably don't need to do a lot of research. Your experience probably tells you, hey, we're doing this, but we probably need to do this. Or we've been, you know, we've been buying these weapons, but we probably need to, you know, whatever it is, right? Your, your experience will tell you. If you're a junior officer um, and you're in your first tour and you want to write about um, how to make the Navy better at, uh, you know, operational planning, you probably have to do a lot of research, right? right? You should probably read, for example, you know, Trent Hone's book on learning war. You should probably read a lot of proceedings articles and, you know, you should probably delve into, you know, some of the, you know, the canon on, you know, operational planning and, uh, you know, Navy doctrine publications. It, there's probably a lot of work you have to do if you're, you know, I've got an itch to write about this topic and I think I've got a, a, a unique idea, but I really have to kind of dig into it, right? And show that I've done my homework. So it kind of depends. Also, I think for writing, you know, like short memoirs or, uh, you know, a sea story, and we take some of those for proceedings too. You know, somebody was, you know, chaplain on the, the Franklin in World War II, you know, or, you know, hey, I was, uh, you know, we're, we're right now coming up on the... Uh, uh, what is it? The 30th anniversary of Operation Desert uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Desert Storm in January. You know, hey, I was uh, uh, I was there on the first strike, the first night strike, going over the beach into um, you know Kuwait and in Iraq. You know, tell that story, right? Just tell the story that your your own personal recollection is the story. But again, I think you know, academic. This is a place where academic papers are are good um, because in order to get a good grade from that war college class, you've got to show that you've done the research, right? And you're probably learning as you go along. So do the research, but then just adapt that paper for the publication that you really want to, you know, target. Yeah. What topics do you think right now for what we're leaning into or projecting into future conflict, what topic do you think junior leaders in the military should really focus on reading in terms of both diversifying our understanding of maybe some complex problems as we haven't talked about before, or being able to have the breadth to be flexible to something we're not even thinking about right now? Yeah, I, I recommend that uh, junior officers do a lot of reading about China and what China's goals are, national strategic goals. They call it national rejuvenation. By 2049, China wants to be the preeminent power in the world. The 2049 is their 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. And they are building a world-class military in line with that national strategy. So read everything and anything you can get your hands on about China's diplomatic, informational, military, economic strategies, what they're doing in the world. Uh, and then particularly delve into, I think, as much in the open source world, but also in the classified world, if you're military, if you've got a, you know, a, a security clearance, 
and you can really delve into the intelligence reporting on what the Chinese are doing in terms of their capabilities that they're building, how they exercise those capabilities, where they're operating, what they're doing. Uh, it's really important to know what the adversary is up to, right? So that I I'd start with that. And then I, I think it's very important also, in fact, this has been a topic that a few um, proceedings articles uh, have addressed. One, I think, by uh, Graham Scarborough, who is our, he's a, a commander, F-18 uh, weapon systems officer. Um, he addressed this a couple of times. It's important to do not just joint professional education, right, but to do Navy professional education, or in your case, Marine Corps professional education. So Graham wrote this article for us maybe a year or two ago, where he said, you know, he got to be a lieutenant commander, and he got this great uh, joint professional military education where he had to find out what the Air Force and the Army and the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard, you know, but he, he said he really didn't know a whole lot about the Navy, about what you know, what's it like to be a SWO? What kind of capabilities does the surface warfare community bring to the Navy? Or what is the, you know, what is a submariner's life like? What what are some things that I, as a as a strike leader in an F-18 squadron, should know about, you know, the submarine community, right? Yeah. And so I, I think it's very important to understand, you know, not just the joint perspective, but also within your service, you know, you're a Marine, right? A Marine infantry officer. Okay, so what are the logisticians going to do to bring to the fight? What are the artillery guys going to bring? What What is the, the helicopter aviation, the, the strike fighter aviation, the UAV community? Understanding how, as a team, you will fight, I think, is very important. You know, we, we talk a lot about at the Naval Institute, we talk about the tribes, you know, so the surface warfare tribe, the submarine tribe, the aviation tribe, the Marine Corps tribe, et cetera, cross-tribal communication, understanding what all of your colleagues in the other tribes in your service and across the, the services, what they bring to the fight so that you can start to think operationally, not just on my tactics of my particular platform, but sort of operationally about, hey, if, if we have to adapt to an adversary that's building these capabilities or exercising in this particular way, I know what I bring to the fight, but what what other things can the, the people the tribes in the strike group or the tribes across the Navy or across the sea services, you know, bring to that particular tactical problem. Yeah. I want, I want to follow up on that idea. So, you know, the, the commandant of the Marine Corps has talked a lot about naval integration. Um, you know, and I think that really gets at this kind of idea you're talking about this, this cross tribal pollination, if you will, and, and being able to maybe form different teams within the teams that we have that maybe are separated by lines now that need to, change or shift as we reorganize for the next conflict. What, what are some things you're really excited about, you know, as we kind of look forward and project into more naval integration, whether things that you've seen people write about in fiction, hey, this is what, you know, the, the future of conflict might look like as we try to project power in different in different ways or certain threats that we need to address through a different combination of the tools that we have. So a couple of things come to my mind real quickly. One is, and I'll, this is a little bit of a preview of coming attraction, but we've got uh, Commandant Berger, General Berger, uh, writing for the uh, November issue of Proceedings. And I was amazed when we got it. He wrote for us last year. He was writing last year about his, at that time, was still new, his Commandant's planning guidance, right? And so we knew he wanted to write something this year. And believe it or not, he says that the Marine Corps in its expeditionary advanced base operations needs to be, wants to be part of the anti-submarine warfare campaign. That blew me away. 
he's huh. thinking, yeah, and you're as a Marine, you're thinking, huh, that's interesting, right? So what kinds of capabilities can Marines operating in remote you know, EABs bring in, in uh, UAVs, perhaps to sense a- adversary submarines, acoustic arrays that are, you know, deployable, that are light, that are, you know, that the, you could deploy offshore from an EAB, right, that could help sense submarines in the littorals. What kinds of weapons could Marines put on UAVs, for example, or UASs? And also, he, he's talking a lot about the logistics support, because as the uh, MPRA, the, the Maritime Patrol aircraft of the Navy P-8s, for example, and, and also our allies, the Marines will could play a logistical support role for those aircraft, could also play a role in uh, helping them develop expeditionary airfields so that those P-8s could move from place to place to keep the adversary you know, on, on their toes about where they're coming from, right? So that was very exciting to me to think that the, Marine, that the head of the Marine Corps is thinking about what can the Marine Corps do to help and advance the anti-submarine warfare campaign. Like that, that blew me away. Like, okay, this is, we're, we've now entered a new phase where the Marines are thinking about the fleet Marine force, about how the Marine Corps, you know, helps and, uh, and aids and is part of the Naval force. And that, that to me was very exciting. Uh, the other thing that's exciting to me um, as a topic, I'm not a, a cyber warfare, I'm not a computer engineer, but to me, it's incredibly interesting to think about the ramifications of interconnectedness and also the vulnerabilities that that brings, right? So the, the, uh, the cyber connections that our force has to have, right? Particularly with UASs and UAVs, right? So if you've got motherships in the future out launching unmanned aerial or submarine or, you know, or or surface vessels, you got to have a connection with those uh, units. So there's a vulnerability there, but there's also an interesting, you know, capability there as well, right? So I think it's, it's really interesting to think about the pairing of man and machine and what things will machines do better than human beings? When do you put a man in the loop or a man, man or woman uh, in the loop or on the loop, right? Right. Uh, and how, how do you regulate that? How do you regulate that in terms of law of war, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, de- decision speed? Um, I think our adversaries probably have a lower threshold of perhaps of caring about, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Ethical standards, maybe? Yeah, ethical standards standards in terms of non-combatant uh, casualties, right? Or you know, so for for example, what I mean by that is I know the U.S. Navy wants to know everything that's out there as a potential target, right? What's red? What's blue? And what's white, right? What is where's the merchant? Uh, traffic in the South China Sea, for example. And we're not going to take a shot with a harpoon or a naval strike missile unless we know for sure that we're not going to hit a a merchant vessel. I'm not sure that our adversaries have that same level of uh, moral clarity. I think that there is a good chance that our adversaries would be like, hey, if you're out there, we're going to target you. If you're not red, if you're not ours, we're going to target you. That different threshold for the U.S., we're not going to allow AI to make decisions about what targets to strike unless we're sure, really sure what that is, right? And I think perhaps the adversaries may be much more willing to let an automated information system make a decision about what ships to uh, engage or what aircraft to engage. And so they might have a 
a speed advantage. They might have a decision advantage where we're still waiting. Are we sure that that's a bad guy and not a merchant ship or a fishing vessel or a, you know, a non-combatant, right? Uh, so that, that man in the loop, man on the loop, AI versus human speed of decision, I think is really fascinating. Do you think that's a holdover maybe from some of our recent conflicts and dealing with collateral damage and counterinsurgency environments or areas where we're operating and there's a lot of civilian targets and we're trying to minimize collateral damage and and that's something that's kind of been built in and ingrained into the learning institution of the military? And do you think that's going to need to change to some degree if we start going into this near-peer threat and we're at a, a relative disadvantage in terms of speed of making decisions because they're incurring more risk, I guess I'm wondering, does that risk calculation become different once we're no longer have overwhelming power advantage against these adversaries we have been fighting? Yeah, I think that it probably does change. And uh, I think our current risk calculus does come out of you know, the past, what, 19 years in the desert and wanting to minimize uh, civilian casualties, which is the absolutely the right thing to do, right? You know, but perhaps in a, and this is also a place I think where, and, and this is a topic that's been in proceedings and other publications a lot in the last couple of years is this topic of the gray zone, right? And so if, if you're in a hot war in the South China Sea, I think it's pretty easy to issue a NOTAM and tell every, every merchant, you know, do not go here, right? This, this area is now, it's a hot zone. It is a war zone. If you are there, there's a good chance that you will be, you know, that you, that you will die, that you will be seen as a target by one side or the other, right? right. But, but below that level of, hey, we've now declared war, we are in a, in a hot war, you know, you're in this gray zone, right? And so then it's okay. Who's acting? What are they doing? We know that the you know that the Chinese, for example, they have the PLA Navy. They have um, a, an incredibly large uh, Coast Guard force, if you will, uh, Whitehalls, right? And then they've got the People's Liberation, you know, merchant fleet, uh, where they've got thousands of fishing vessels that are. C- connected into and tied into uh, military leadership and command and control, right? right? They're not just civilians. And so they'll, they will play a role. And so in this gray zone where it's nebulous, is that, is that PLA fishing vessel, is it a combatant? Is it acting like a combatant? Is it really a combatant? Can we shoot it? Um, can we, can we do something because it's acting in a belligerent manner against either um, you know, a Filipino fishing vessel or a Vietnamese fishing vessel or, you know, or, or somebody else. Um, and so I think the, the rules of engagement get kind of sticky. And that's a place where we have not been, um, you know, particularly good at playing in the gray zone. The Russians, for, for example, have been very good at it. I think the Chinese are really good at it, right? They've shown that ability to sort of engage with fishing vessels, for example, Scarborough Shoal, um, a few years ago against the Philippines, um, you know, they engaged not with military forces, but military forces were just over the horizon, right, ready to come. So they they had the ability to escalate if they needed to, but they were also able to inflict pain at a level below what we would consider, you know, a, an open act of warfare. Uh, and in that case, they, you know, they won. What do you think America needs to do to increase our capability or our effectiveness in competing in this gray zone area? maybe on a, on a large scale in terms of other instruments of national power, or what does the military need to be able to do in order to continue to compete and withstand some of that lower level aggression? 
That's a thousand dollar question. <laughs> I, I, I wish I had a great answer for you. One answer I would give you, and, and this comes from uh, when I was uh, a captain, I was working at the Joint Intelligence Operations Center in the Pacific, and Admiral Willard was the, uh, the, the PACOM commander at that time, now the Indo-PACOM commander. And he spent, I think, five of his seven or eight flag tours in the Pacific, very intently focused on uh, what the Chinese were doing, and this is 2009 to 11 that he was the commander, 2012, he engendered some really great conversations on the staff. And he wanted to probe and ask deep questions and get the staff and the intelligence team really thinking about what we needed to do to counter you know, Chinese uh, military buildup. And, and not just their military capabilities, but also what they were doing, their activities, their behavior, right? And one of the things that came out that has stayed with me is that the Chinese had a real, they had, I don't know if it was an appetite for, but they certainly had a, a large ability to endure friction in the relationship, right? So, so China accepted a high degree of friction in the relationship with the United States. And they there were things that perhaps in the trade area where they could push forward in an area and we might balk and we might get angry for a little while, but if we didn't stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with them, over time, we would just sort of let it go. And then that new position that the Chinese were in became the new starting position. And then they would move forward from there, right? Uh, and the same thing was true militarily, where I think you know, the Chinese were willing to do things that engendered friction with us. And the United States was not willing to just kind of stand with that friction and say, no, you can't, you cannot move into, in, in this case, Scarborough Shoal, which is Phil very clearly Philippine territory, Philippine, inside the, the Philippine EEZ, right? You can't do that. And so we're not going to allow you to do that. We're going to, we're going to make a big deal of this. We're going to, we're going to go up, come after this problem with all elements of national power. Uh, we're not just going to do a diplomatic demarche and go home. So I think that's one of the things that the United States needs to be better at is, is being willing to um, absorb a certain amount of friction and say, you know what, we don't have to have happiness in every aspect of our relationship with China or Russia. We can have we can have some areas where there's you know the Venn diagram overlaps, but then there's areas where there's going to be there's going to be enduring friction, and that's okay, right? That is okay, and we are we are willing to stand up for what we what we believe in. We are willing to keep going. And I, I, I will give a little um, uh, credit, I think, to this administration because they've endured more of that fr friction in the area of freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, where the Chinese make a complaint about it all the time, but the United States continues to do it. And I think that's a great example. It's a small example, but it's a great example where, okay, hey, this is going to is going to engender some friction. The Chinese aren't going to like this. But we're going to do it because it's the right thing to do, and it's it's part of our national security policy. It's part of how we um, recognize the global international order, the international maritime order, if you will. Um, and so we're going to do it. This is our way of pushing back. And we're not going to just do it once and go home. We're going to do it this week and next week and next month and next year, and we're going to continue to do it and do it and do it. You know, the Chinese have a long view, right? And so it takes a long time to convince them that you're really serious about something. Um, it's, yeah, so I, I think that's a, an important thing. And I learned that from Admiral Willard and from the questions that he asked us about 10 years ago uh, was, hey, you know what? We're not willing to endure some friction and we probably need to be 
not just military to military, but nation to nation. Absolutely. That is, that's really good insight. I want to go back real quickly to professional military writing. And I'm curious what your thoughts are, right, as, as the editor of Proceedings, in terms of the difference between military's profession versus other professions like law or medicine, you know, they have gone on for a long time. What are some things that are different and unique to our profession in the military uh, that kind of make it different have a slightly different flavor in terms of how all of the institutions work together, for example, um, you know, proceedings or other military journals with the academic institutions, right? We talked about professional military education, those being different from academia in law and medicine, as well as their journals and their, their practice that all inform each other. What are some things that you think are unique to the military that make it a, a worthwhile endeavor? Well, that's a great question. A couple of things come to my mind. First off is uh, one I have, a, my oldest daughter is uh, uh, currently in medical school. Uh, and so I, I'm watching her go through this process of becoming a medical profession professional and how hard she is working at that and the amount of time and study that goes into that. It's it's um, it's daunting. My, my partner is a lawyer who is uh, involved in uh, federal judicial education, right? So her job is to provide, is to do these educational programs for federal judges. Uh, one one uh, thought that that pops out is that you know the the profession of law is you know a law a law practice, right? And a medical practice, and so practice makes perfect. And and in the military, you know, we we talk about the, you know the art of war. And there's there's um, I think it it is a profession, and it's also there's a good amount of um, creativity and art that goes into it because, you know, there are some things that are fact-based, right, that are, you know, bound by the laws of physics, you know, in military operations. You know, a bullet a bullet will go so fast if, you know, with so much, you know, gunpowder behind it and coming out of, you know, a nuclear submarine can, you know, travel X, you know, speed underwater and, uh, you know, all those things that are physics-based. And you learn a lot about that at the Naval Academy or ROTC. But then there are a lot of things that I think are, you know, that do fall into the uh, the aspect of of art, the art of applying all these different capabilities to get the adversary to do what you want him him or her to do. And I think that it's an art because it takes so much time and effort to uh, to get good at it. And we spend in the U.S. military, we spend so much of our careers. You know, I, I have a lot of friends who were uh, you know F-18 pilots and uh, you know naval aviators, and watching their careers and you know the amount of time that they spend in the cockpit in their careers, it's amazing. You know, to go from you know flying and learning how to fly at flight flight school to going to the replacement air group and learning how to fly that particular type model series to going to a squadron or fleet squadron to going back to uh, the FRS or back perhaps to flight school to teach and then to a department. I mean, it's, you know, they spend so much of their time honing their their capabilities as naval aviators with that particular uh, weapon system, right? And then when you, you know, oftentimes it's not until post-05 command that they get a job where their job, you know, where their requirements are to think much more broadly, to look at either operationally or strategically, and to see not just, um, you know, their particular weapon system, but also what is happening geopolitically in the world, what's happening within the U.S. military, the capabilities that other mili- other parts of the military bring. 
and then to start to, you know, sort of uh, pull those strings a little bit and think about, okay, how do we apply all these capabilities that the U.S. military or the U.S. government has to this particular problem set? I, I was exposed to some of this, at, you know, as a captain uh, at the National Counterterrorism Center, my last tour of uh, active duty, I worked in the uh, Directorate for Strategic uh, Operational Policy, and our job was to look at counterterrorism in particular regions of the of the world. Mine was the Middle East, and look for interagency. What are the interagency solutions to Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, for example? Right, the the problems that are happening in uh, in Yemen. I remember being kind of blown away by the fact that one aspect of that little problem was uh, brought to me by the Bureau of Prisons, believe it or not. Huh. But the, U the U.S. Bureau of Prisons was part of this interagency task force that was looking at al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, what's happening in, in Yemen. And one of the problems was that even when we could help the Yemenis capture al-Qaeda operatives and put them in jail, the prisons in Yemen were so porous uh, They'd be in jail for maybe a day, a week, a month, uh, and then they would escape. And it was so easy to escape from Yemeni prisons, and then they were back in the fight, right? And and I, it never even occurred to me that the U.S. Bureau of Prisons might be part of this problem set. And so, they, you know, okay, well, what can, what can you guys do about it? Well, you know, we have – they actually had money in their budget to help foreign countries um, – improve the security at their prisons, right? And, and improve the, the, the human conditions at prisons as well. And I just remember that one example of, oh my God, this is, we're, we're, you're painting on such a big canvas here and and all the different, you know, if you will, crayons if or, or paint colors, but the different things that you can use to paint on that that large canvas that against that particular problem set is, is pretty amazing. And so I think that's why, you know, the military being, a, you know, a particularly good military strategist or, or operational operator, uh, it requires it requires an artistic, you know, you have to have a scientific mind, but you also have to have a good, a fair amount of left brain, right? You have to be able to, you got to be able to think artistically um, and perhaps out of the box on how you're going to come after this pr particular problem set. Yeah, that's is, that is fascinating. That's a really interesting example of uh, how, yeah, how it's not always cookie cutter. Sometimes it can feel a little bit, you know, especially kind of in the, in the junior ranks, um, you know, a little bit cookie cutter. You know, we're executing what's what's been done, what's always been done, and, and this is how you do it. But that's fascinating. I feel that really ties in well to, you know, the the initiative you guys are pushing with the the fiction and the writing, right? Flexing that creative problem solving aspect is uh, really interesting. Really want to thank you for your time. This has been a really fascinating conversation. I think our, our audience is really going to appreciate it. Do you have any final words of wisdom or encouragement, any inspirational quotes or anything you want to leave our, our audience with out there? One thing I'd like to say, I'd be, I would be remiss if I didn't say that given uh, my current job as the editor-in-chief of Proceedings. I, I love my job. One of the things that I take great pride in is that in Proceedings was started in, the Naval Institute was started in 1873 by a group of Naval officers and a Marine who saw the, the abysmal state of the U.S. Navy post-Civil uh, War, and they said, we, we've got to do something about this. We have to generate new ideas. We have to generate new tactics. We've got to come up with new ways to think about why this nation, this still fairly new nation, needs a Navy and what that Navy should look like. And um, over the last 150 years, a lot of really great ideas have come 
uh, through proceedings and and have moved the needle for the Navy, Marine Corps, now uh, Coast Guard as well. And uh, for anyone out there, uh, particularly junior officers or or enlisted people, right? We have more and more enlisted uh, professionals writing for proceedings as well. Uh, don't think, oh well, you know, I'm just a lieutenant, I'm just an ensign, I'm just a you know a petty officer or a sergeant. You know, Lieutenant Chester Nimitz in 1912 uh, wrote an article in Proceedings long, long before World War II, long before he put on his fifth star about how submarines were going to change the future of naval warfare. Right, the Lieutenant Chester Nimitz, Commander Alfred Thayer Mahan was uh, took took one of the prizes in our first essay contest in uh, the late 1870s. Lieutenant Ernest J. King won the general prize essay contest uh, for the Naval Institute, I think, in uh, 1909, and he later said that winning that contest changed his mind about whether he had something to offer this profession. Right, and um, uh, the best ideas don't. And most of the time don't come from, uh, you know, from admirals and generals. They come from, they come from the deck plates. They come from, you know, young officers who look at things with it from a slightly different perspective, a new perspective. And so if, and I, this is the last thing is, uh, this is really important for, for young people who have an idea about how to make the Navy and Marine Corps better. Um, don't worry about your writing uh, capabilities. If you were a, a mechanical engineering major at the Naval Academy, you're like, well, boy, I didn't do so well in my English <laughs> classes. Uh, we are looking, we're looking for the ideas, right? So write it down, send it to us. If it, if it needs work, we'll help you work on it. But we're really looking for those great ideas from young people uh, that could potentially make the Navy Marine Corps Coast Guard better, right? Um, and I've got a staff of amazing editors who can help a great idea that's sort of hidden in a fairly well-written paper. We can make it shine so that the great idea really comes out. Uh, and so just, you know, think of us as your advocate, as your co-author if you need help. Um, but don't don't shy away. Don't think to yourself, oh, well, I could never write a proceedings article. Uh, because you absolutely can, and all we're looking for is uh, is the ideas. And sometimes maybe your first article won't get published by us, but your second one will, or your third one will. You know, come at it, give it a try, and keep trying. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you for the the words of encouragement there, and thanks so much for joining us on the show today. All right, hey Eugene, thanks for having me. It's great to be on the show. Thanks for listening to this episode of What Are You Reading? A podcast produced through partnership with DOD Reads. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share it. Leave us a comment with your answer to the question, what are you reading? Also, visit dodreads.com for free books, book reviews, interviews with your favorite authors, and many more free professional development resources. See you next week. Thank you.